Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nate Sager. Before we start, I want to point out a correction from our last interview with Brian Burke, Season 4, Episode 5, where I incorrectly said that he uh, played hockey for the University of Maine when in fact it was Providence, and he later played for the Philadelphia Flyers affiliate in Maine, the Mariners. Indeed, yeah, he jumped out of the Friars right into the Flyers farm team. (laughs) So, as for today, if you are Canadian, or if you are a hockey fan in general, you you should have heard about Willie O'Ree by now. But what do you or I really know about the man other than, 19, than in 1958 he became the first black player to play in an NHL game and that he has been a diversity ambassador for the league for the past 22 years. Did you know that he traces his ancestry back to a man named Paris O'Ree who his family believes fled South Carolina through an early version of the Underground Railroad and reached New Brunswick nearly 100 years before Confederation? Did you know he attended training camp with the Milwaukee Braves in Waycross, Georgia during the height of Jim Crow? Or that the man he is often mentioned in the same breath with in hockey circles, Jackie Robinson, is someone he actually met in his early teens in 1949, and he told the pioneer that he would do for hockey what Jackie did for baseball. And then they would later meet again in 1962 at an NAACP luncheon where Robinson remembered the confident young man. I met you in Brooklyn, and you told me you were going to be a hockey player, he said to O'Ree. And so you did. These are some of the things you'll learn when you read Willie, O'Ree's autobiography released on October 20th with Michael McKinley. What is perhaps most profound is Mr. O'Ree's perspective, particularly the way in which he breaks down why Herb Carnegie, who didn't get the chance he did, how he was caught by an indirect, almost more hurtful type of discrimination which is not being given or which is being given a shot but not really a fair one. And he's also careful to include Larry Kwong who like uh, Carnegie faced an ice ceiling if you will but did actually get to play one shift. Did he get a fair shot? No, not really he told Ken Reed in one night only. Quote from the book, let's say what Herb Carnegie and Larry Kwong experienced didn't go away when I made the NHL. He writes After living in relative anonymity after retiring from pro hockey in 1979, O'Ree was approached by the NHL in 1996, and expanding the game was the mandate of the new regime, and so in Mr. O'Ree they found someone who could champion inclusion and attract kids of different backgrounds to the fastest game on earth. Two years later, he was hired as the Director of Youth Development and Ambassador for NHL Diversity. Now over to you, Nate. Yeah, thank you, Neil. Yeah, Willie O'Ree and Michael McKinley have crafted a memoir that shows that everyone, you know, early in life, they need to hear about what they can do rather than what they cannot. Like, you know, regardless of your of your life circumstances, what what you were born into, I think that's what gives someone a fighting chance of, of believing in themselves. He states, you know, he didn't really face people hating him for the color of his skin until he left Fredericton, New Brunswick in the mid-1950s to pursue his uh, hockey dream. And that really segues into what I thought was a message of the book, which was leading people to some level of understanding because, you know, Willie O'Ree saw, some, saw the, you know, the corrosive effects of uh, racism and, and uh, racial, ra- ra- racial resentment. I mean, he was in the Jim Crow South, you know, taking a shot at baseball. He was living in Los Angeles when the, you know, the Watts Rebellion happened in 1965. Uh, you know, I think the book does a good job of leading people, you know, who are sheltered like me, <laughs> to some level of understanding that, you know, racism often seems times to fit that sort of iceberg analogy. You had ice ceiling, I got, I have iceberg. Uh, there's that one eighth of it that's above the waterline. It's easy to see and dunk on over Facebook and Twitter. Oh, look, there's Karen, you know, calling the cops on some guy doing lunges in the park again. And, but then there's the inevitable reminders that there's that other seven-eighths, you know, that's below the surface. It's, you know, baked into, you know, the the power structure of Western society. And O'Ree writes, as a young adult, he saw, he saw that there were two types of discrimination. Sometimes there's the wall that you're not getting through, but there's also these invisible lines that, you know, sometimes you dared not to cross. And he also said, as he went on in his career, uh, you know, oftentimes as the only black player in an entire league, you know, not never mind his own team, he said there was a, you know, a creeping kind of racism wherein he, quote, 
was not allowed to only play hockey. Hockey. I know that even today, black NHLers are never just hockey players, and we have been seeing that close up in the last year or so with the activism from athletes, uh, you, you know, extending throughout every every pro sport board, uh, particular and in particular with hockey players such as well Akeem Aliou, and then on to you know current NHLers like Matthew Dumba, Malcolm Subban. Ryan Reeves, Evander Kane, and Dar- Darnell Nurse, you know, forming their the Hockey Diversity Alliance and getting, you know, the team owners and the league to realize ho- the hockey industry has a duty to assist with the Black Lives Matters movement. Now, like, he's a guy who's soft-spoken, but the way he faced down, you know, hatefulness at times by, you know, through his, you know, self-compassion and self-belief, I think that carries a big stick, to use the Teddy Roosevelt analogy, Call back to our Brian Burke episode last week. <laughs> uh, the book's narrative really prompts one to think about, you know, who is it who gets the door held open for them and who has to keep knocking at the door and, and maybe even, you know, kicking it in. Uh, the circumstances that kept uh, his NHL stint to just 45 games were were this sort of curious uh, catch-22. Uri uh, was blind in his right eye after being injured playing junior in 1956, which he kept secret for obvious reasons. And I think he sort of believes that, you know, that was why the Boston Bruins moved on him, moved on from him quickly after one year, moved him to the Montreal Canadiens. Now, in, in those days, the, you know, the Canadians were, you know, regal hockey royalty and the Bruins were sort of a perennial, you know, also also ran. Uh, and the Bruins quickly flipped him to the Canadians to get v- value in return rather than lose him for nothing. And. The way it worked out was he didn't play another NHL game after that because Montreal moved him to Los Angeles in the Western Hockey League, which was a minor league, a high caliber minor league, which probably had more in common today with you know something like a Europe, a league in Europe. Like it's not a, it's not a farm, it's not a farm system. It's a, it's its own thing, uh, and it helped hockey grow in several cities, you know, that are now NHL mar- markets. But when the NHL finally expanded in 1967, guys who were in that league, they didn't get exposed to the expansion draft, and, and Willie ended up staying in the Western League right until the day it, it folded in 1974. So he never got that, you know, we always talk about a second chance aside, but he never got that second chance as an NHL player, even though he was a, a goal-scoring champion in that, you know, really good caliber minor pro league in the NHL obviously needed a lot of uh, new guys and there were there were players in their 30s making their debuts after expansion it was a different time so we're not in position to judge and there's plausible hockey reasons for why things worked out the way they did but you know what 40 years after Willie O'Ree played in the NHL while concealing a visual a huge visual limitation you know Brian Burrard whom we as guest in March he made a comeback in the NHL after he was blinded in one eye and I think he told us that he wouldn't have met the NHL's vision requirement, but I think at that time they realized it was better for hockey to you know to show that someone could persevere and, and come back from that. Whereas in the NH- in pro hockey and Willie O'Ree's time, they were just like, well, we don't we don't know, we don't want to take that risk. Well, why didn't they? We 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 don't know, but we, you know, one has to wonder why the accommodation in one era, why not in another. What's also good about Willie, you know, the book, I think we're going to call him Mr. O'Ree until we're, until we're told otherwise, is that it also, I think, challenges some of the ways we, you know, talk about, you know, pioneering black sports people. For instance, with the Jackie Robinson story, it's often subtly implied that, you know, once the initial resistance to integration frayed, you know, progress just moved in a straight line and it... I think it's often, you know, couched in terms of American exceptionalism and progress. Like, you know, look at look how you know astute we are that we that we real, realized. But you know, Jackie Robinson was a complex man, and he had lots lots of conflict. He was someone who said, you know, I cannot stand and sing the anthem. I cannot salute the flag. I know that I am a black man in a white world. And I saw that quote uh, the other night on Twitter, Sports by Brooks, and he's like, who said this, Jackie Robinson or Colin Kaepernick? And about 20% of people were like, oh, Kaepernick must have said that. And it's like, no, no, not at all. Thankfully, you know, Twitter and bot farms weren't around in Jackie Robinson's day to blow blow that out of proportion. Point being, uh, 
you know, Willie O'Ree was of that generation of black athlete who was exposed to a lot of the backlash that came because, you know, at, you know, people like Jackie Robinson broke through through and and were successful and, you know, and proved that you know it, what it'd be what uh, I think white society had been missing out on by having sports be segregated. Uh, he, you know, saw Willie in his case saw it firsthand when he went to a baseball tryout in the Deep South. You know, not long after the lynching murder of Emmett Till, when you know a lot of the practices of segregation were being doubled down upon, as a response to uh, I guess the U.S. federal courts, you know, making decisions like Brown versus Board of Education. And recently, I think uh, Rees used the expression of you know it's one step forward, two steps back for diversity and inclusion. Sometimes, I think he said that earlier in the year when he was giving an interview while weighing in on the aforementioned Akim Alou, who's a Nigerian-born Canadian-Ukrainian hockey player, who last about this time last year went public with you know some of his you know tension with his coach Bill Peters when Alou was a first-year pro. When I saw Reese saying that, after reading this book, I sort of connected an incident from his career with the Bruins to the specific one in the Major Junior Ontario Hockey League that sort of soured me on covering that level of the sport. For O'Ree, it was a time in 1961, he stood up to the aggression from Chicago's Eric Nesterenko during an away game, and a bench-clearing brawl ensued. And ultimately, Chicago team officials decided to lock Willie O'Ree in the Bruins dressing room for his own good. As Willie put it, I was a prisoner in Chicago Stadium. So he faced more severe consequences for Nest- than Nestorenko, who was the instigator. Now, in 2018, a few weeks after some dude bros in, coincidentally, Chicago, chanted, Basketball! at Devontae Smith-Pelly of the Washington Capitals, and a few weeks before Willie O'Ree got the call that he was going into the Hockey Hall of Fame as a builder, Giovanni Smith was playing in an Ontario Hockey League semifinal series with the Kitchener Rangers, and Smith, who made his NHL debut last season with the Detroit Red Wings, uh, was suspended for the deciding game of this intense series because he gave the finger to the players on the opposing bench, like held up his middle finger at the end of the game. It's definitely agreed upon in the set of facts that he, that Smith, who, who is black, had heard racist taunting early in the season. And that goes back to what Willie said. You know, you just can't, you st- can't just be a hockey player. Uh, and it was a conference final that went seven games. And, you know, chirping is a cherished part of hockey, but sometimes it goes too far. And doubtlessly, there were lots of things said that crossed the line. And, Smith, after he, you know, gave, flipped the bird at the, at the other team's bench, he got you know racist abuse and threats over social media. The OHL said it had to provide the Rangers team and Smith a police escort, something that never had to like go to go there before. To the decisive game, he was not able to play in. Now, I'm not here to defend, you know, giving giving people the finger, obviously, but. It seemed just so unfair and ironic that the only thing that they had a mechanism to punish was Giovanni Smith, you know, you know, acting out and not everything else that it had gone on during the series. He was the only one to face real consequences over all that ugly, ugliness. And for that and for various other reasons, I was just like, eh, I'm, I don't think I'm going to write about, about this level of hockey anymore. I'll, I still love it, but I'm just going to withdraw. It wasn't, you know... And now I think it's, there was a similar double standard at play during, you know, one of the bleakest chapters in, in that league's history, the OHLs. You know, I'll tweet the link out when we put out our annotations of this episode, Neil. But my friends uh, Darius Dominguez and Brian Thompson, they made a video not too long ago called OHL Desire that sort of shows the history of the league, the, you know, the great people who've graced it and the teams. And it show, it includes all the unflattering parts in, in between footage where they show like clips that remind you about when teams left, you know, a city. Uh, there's a few seconds between of the infamous fight between Akeem Alou and Steve Downey during Windsor Spitfire's practice in 2005. We're talking about practice. Uh, now, re- refresher, you know, Steve Downey was a third-year player, which makes someone a veteran in junior hockey, and Alou was a rookie who had refused to submit to being hazed. So Downey cross-checked Alou in the mouth at practice and knocked out several of his teeth. So Alou, minutes later, came back to the ice, and they fought. Now, who faced a greater fallout over this? Alou ended up missing two months of hockey in his first year 
of junior, like, you know, crucial development time because the league rule said you can only trade a rookie at a certain point in the season, and it was early in the year. And that incident kind of followed him around, went on his, you know, unwritten permanent record, as it were, and his NHL draft stock dropped. And as he's detailed, you know, there there were other times there were, you know, misunderstandings, microaggressions that throughout his career. Now, no one's saying Steve Downey was on easy street, but within weeks of abusing and arguably assaulting his own teammate, again, at practice, possibly because he, you know, felt threatened by a lose, you know, racial and ethnic background, you know, Downey was wearing a maple leaf on his chest representing Team Canada at the World Junior Hockey Championship. And I don't remember the serious hockey knowers having this discussion over whether it was morally right to have him on the team after what would happen. Uh, that discussion never really got past, well, you know, will Downey, you know, rein it in and, you know, be on the right, you know, stay on the good side of the line. No, okay, and ending, ta- ending, ta- ending tangent about uh, the World Juniors 15 years ago. Uh, O'Reeve now obviously faced racist provocations, but the book makes it very clear that yeah, he's not defined by that. It's other people who chose to define themselves that way by, you know, trying to label him, trying to, you know, bring, bring him down. As he says, I have always tried to find my solution. And I think that applies to his second hockey career with the NHL diversity program. Like, you know, he was the right guy at the right place at the right time when, when they wanted to, you know, expand, expand the game. And, it sh- and I think it should make clear that, you know, what, what he talks about, what they talk about in this book, that the reasons you sometimes hear for why, you know, the demographics of hockey are what they are, it's a lot of times it's, it is just excuses. I mean, yeah, the game's expensive, but I think it's expensive for everybody, right? As uh, our, we've talked about in our Sean Fitzgerald episode uh, last year, Neil. Uh, you know, if a, a, a great game can't not be so good that it can shut out any portion of the population for reasons other than talent and desire. Because if, it, if that is the case, then... How good of a game is it really? And overall, the notion, tried to find my solution, that's, I think, a great motto, you know, (laughs) in general, in this sort of year of the pandemic. Uh, These aren't the best of times, but, you know, Willie O'Ree, who maybe should have had more of a run in the NHL, uh, he's definitely found a way to have have the best of times in, you know, difficult circumstances, the time when, you know, players had to negotiate their own contracts when he was the you know only uh black player in a in in the league uh he was obviously someone you get the message that this is someone who believed in himself and practiced self-compassion as much as he i think practiced his uh skating and puck handling so he has got our gratitude for joining us today neil thank you nate and after the break mr willie o'ree joins us from his home in san diego First of all, I got to say, uh, happy belated birthday. You just turned 85 uh, on the 15th, I believe. So congratulations on that milestone. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you kindly. Um, I have to say, I know that about the history you made. I mean, you can't watch hockey and not know about the history you made, but I had no idea the breadth of your history, your personal history, your family history. So I want to ask you... Oh, yeah. I want to ask you, who is Paris O'Ree? About Paris, well, you know, I I I didn't know that much about my my ancestry until I came to the NHL in '96 and got involved with uh, Brian McBride. And uh, <clears throat> Brian wanted to do a Brian uh, wanted to do a documentary on me, and uh, uh, we had discussed it, and we, he got together with a, a young lady that uh, that did the filming. Uh, Laurence uh, Mayer, and uh, they asked me about my my ancestry and and my grandparents and great grandparents, and I knew a little of them because my parents had had never uh, spoken much about them. But um, they uh, they decided that they needed to get more information if they were going to do this documentary. So we went down to South Carolina. Um, and went to the archives, and uh, they had. Um, books there, uh, and they um, <clears throat> they pulled them out, 
and um, went back to uh, around the 1780. And that's how I first started to, to find out about my uh, my ancestors. Yeah, it's it's remarkable the story of, of how Paris ended up uh, coming into New Brunswick from from South Carolina on what might have been the early formations of the Underground Railroad. Yes, that's true. Um, I want to ask you uh, about working with Michael McKinley, who did this book with you. Uh, I had understood that you had done some work with him before on possibly a children's book. Is that correct? That's correct. It was the uh, a children's book called the, the documentary of, uh, of Willie O'Ree. Yeah, um, Mike's a, a fine dude. We had a, we had a good time doing the children's book, and then uh, when we decided to do the, the adult book, um, we spent numerous uh, hours on the phone. Uh, I got together and uh, and got uh, photos and pictures and uh, some information uh, for him to. Uh, you know, to do this book, and uh, it, it I, apparently it worked out good. They were very, very pleased um, with the outcome. Yeah, it was a very interesting read. He actually wrote Hockey, a People's History, and I, I imagine that he, especially when well, he was expounding on your history uh, and the history of the game and the background, and especially the Deep South, he, he must have been, you know, utilizing his skill set as a historian. Oh, oh yes, yeah. yeah. We had a, we had a good time. We had a. A few laughs um, as as we were doing it, and uh, and uh, you know he asked me, well, how 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 deep do you want to go into your you know your personal life? I said, well, I said, you know, I just want to you know um, tell about not only my my hockey um, uh, my hockey career, but after I had uh, after I had retired in nineteen uh, nineteen seventy nine eighty. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Go ahead, sir. No, yeah, I was just acknowledging what you're saying. Yeah, no, that's that that absolutely. Um, Nate actually had a question now for you. Yes. Yeah, so what's and what? How does the overall message of the book uh, fit in with sort of what we the activism we've seen from you know ho- hockey players and other athletes so far here in 2020? Well, yeah. Well, um, uh, with me, uh, I um, I used uh, my. Uh, my unfortunate accident um, with my with my eye injury. Um, you know, playing the, the goals, the goals that I had set for myself and the dreams that I had self, set for myself back when I was fourteen. Um, the two were to hopefully play uh, pro and then one day get into the National Hockey League. Well, um, my growing up and I decided when I was fourteen that I wanted to become a professional hockey player. And uh, I knew what I had to do. I I was uh, I was attending school, so I knew I had to stay in school and get an education. Um, and then uh, I I had I had had the uh, the privilege of playing uh, uh, with my brother on two or three teams before I left uh, to to go up to uh, to Quebec in nineteen nineteen fifty four. And uh, once I once I found out, uh, once my brother found out. You know the, the the deep desire I had to play. He t- you know he told me about a lot of things that I would need to know if I was going to pursue, you know, hockey as a as a career. And um, he said you'll probably be with, uh, probably be faced with with racism and prejudice. But he says I know the type of individual that you are that you could just overcome that and, and kind of block it out because if if you decide you want to just concentrate. Then that's basically what you'll have to do, and there's uh, there's going to be a, a lot of hard work uh, that you're going to have to do because, you know, being the only black player um, at camp, I knew that I would uh, have to work a lot harder uh, than some of the white players there. And indeed, like so, at, at that stage in life, you've sort of had it had a mindset of uh, you know what people say to me or try to do to me that doesn't define who I am that's them no, defining themselves not a bit not a bit uh, you know I, I knew what I wanted to do and I I just said if people can't accept me for the individual that I am and then the, that's that that's going to be their problem not mine um, I got a I have a question now and when Jackie Robinson broke the MLB uh, color barrier in 1947 there was a build-up in the media toward it but when you write about um, your experience, your first game in January of 1958, um, <laughs> it was much different. You write, uh, 
history, of course, would make much more of it than we did that night. So why why do you yeah. think why do you think that was why why you know what what factors uh, are behind? I that? don't I really I, I really don't know you know when I I had gone to the Bruins training camp on two occasions in in 1957 and then I went again in 1958 and, and um, the Bruins had a working agreement with the Quebec Aces the team that was the pro team that was playing out of out of Quebec City. Mm. So when I arrived in when I arrived in Montreal. Uh, and I was I was met by Milt Schmidt, the coach, and Lynn Patrick, the GM. They sat me down and said, "Well, we brought you up because we think you can add a little something to the team." He said, "Don't worry about uh, anything. Uh, you're a Bruin, uh, and just go out and uh, and just play hockey." And basically, um, that's you know that's what I did. See, I, I was no stranger to the Montreal fans because I had played against the Montreal Junior Canadiens in the Montreal Forum. And then they had a pro team there, the uh, Montreal Royals, which I also played against after I played as a junior. So when I stepped on the ice, uh, I, I think there was no big deal. I just said, "Oh, there's there's a black kid up with the Bruins." There was there wasn't really uh, a big deal made about it. There was um, uh, hardly anything written in the paper. And then I didn't realize that I had broke the color barrier until I read it in the paper the next day. <laughs> um- and you you met uh, Jackie Robinson twice, uh, possibly yes. more. But there's two times that you talk you write about it in this book. So would you share yes. share those instances right now? Uh, 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 the one when you were 13 years old, and then again in 1962. Yeah, well, actually, I was 14, and I was playing baseball in my hometown, and I I played shortstop and second base, and uh, we won the championship that year. And the reward was that our team was going to be taken to New York to see the Empire State Building and Radio Music City Hall and Coney Island and the Statue of Liberty and went and saw Mr. Robinson play after the game and went down to the dugout, uh, shook hands with them and uh, told Mr. Robinson that I not only played baseball but I, I played hockey and he didn't realize that there were any black kids playing hockey at that time and I said yes Mr. Robinson there's a few. So we talked and then uh, I told him that I was, you know, that I was uh, gearing up to hopefully um, play professional hockey, and he just said, you know, whatever sport you choose, he said, you know, uh, work hard and uh, be the best player you could be. So, um, you know, we left, and I go back to Fredericton, and, and um, I played baseball in the next, uh, you know, the next year, and um, I leave, I leave my hometown in um, in nineteen. I left in uh, to go up in 1954 to go up to Quebec to play my first year junior, and then I went to Kitchener or uh, Kitchener, Ontario, and played my second year junior, and uh, turned pro in, in 19, 1956 with the Quebec Aces. Uh, Punch Emlack was the coach. Well, well, after that, I had uh, you know um, played with the uh, played with the with the Bruins. And uh, I left the Bruins in, in 1961, went back to uh, my hometown, and uh, the Bruins said, yeah, Willie, go home, have a good have a good summer, look forward to coming back with the Bruins. Um, so I go home and tell my, my parents and tell my closest friends I'm coming back with the Bruins. I was home about six weeks, and I get there, I'm, I'm living um, at, at my mom and dad's place uh, with my sister, the phone rings and my mom answers the phone and and says, Willie, it's a sports writer. So I, I take the phone and I says, hello. He said, Mr. O'Ree. I says, yes. He says, um, what do you think about the trade? And I said, uh, well, you have me at a disadvantage. What trade are you referring to? He says, well, you've been traded to the Montreal Canadiens. I says, I have. He says, yes. He says, how do you feel about playing with the Montreal Canadiens? And I said, oh. I'll probably be playing in their farm system. I won't be playing for the Montreal Canadiens. I didn't get any notification from the Bruins, no phone call, no telegram, nothing. I did get a nice letter from the uh, Montreal Canadiens saying that they acquired my contract. So I go and uh, I, I play in, uh, started playing in Hull, Ottawa. And um, I'm having a good year. <clears throat> and then I get uh, traded to the Los Angeles Blades a team operating out of Los Angeles in the Western Hockey League. So I go out there, and that's 1961. Uh, in 1962, I'm I'm uh, I'm having a I'm having a good year, and um, I get a letter 
from the uh, NAACP informing me that they're, they're having a luncheon for Mr. Robinson at one of the local local hotels in, in North Hollywood. And I received an invitation. So the coach and three players go to the luncheon, and Mr. Robinson is standing over in the corner <laughs> talking to some media people, and we're standing just offside, just waiting for Mr. Robinson to finish. When he finished, the coach and three players come over, and the coach introduced us, and he said, Mr. Robinson, I'd like to introduce you to three of the local players here, especially Willie O'Ree, uh, newly acquired from the Hullado Canadians uh, back in the uh, eastern part of Canada. And Mr. Robinson turned to me and looked at me and says, Willie O'Ree, he says, aren't you the young fellow I met in Brooklyn? And I said, yeah, yes, Mr. Robinson. So he remembered me from meeting me in 1949 and then meeting me again in, uh, in 1962, and it, it made a big impact on me. Wow. Um, Mr. O'Ree, uh, speaking of baseball, you excelled in baseball, too, and you earned a tryout with the Milwaukee Braves in Georgia and Waycross. How did you yes. prepare to go from your situation in Fredericton into the Jim Crow South? How, what did you even know about preparing for that? How could you prepare yourself I, for that? Well, I, I knew the way blacks were treated in the South. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, I explained to my mom and dad, I said, I have this opportunity to go down and try out for the, the Milwaukee Braves Mine Lake Operations in Waycross, Georgia. And they said, oh, no, Willie, no, please uh, don't don't consider that. They said, we wouldn't want you to go down there. We were afraid that, you you know, there'd be bodily injury to you. So I said, okay. So then I talked to my older brother. And my brother was not only my brother and my friend, but he was my mentor. And he taught me a lot of things that I would need to know about uh, sports, um, if I, what I wanted to choose. And um, he says, well, you have this opportunity. How do you feel inside? Do you feel that you'd like to go down for the experience or you feel just pass. I said, gee, I, I'd really like to go down for the experience. He said, well, if you feel if you feel that way, he said, then go. Well, my parents were, you know, my parents were definitely against it. So I go down, I fly into Atlanta, never been in the South before, fly into Atlanta, Georgia. I got off the plane, walked into the terminal, and um, the first thing I saw with the restrooms were colored only and white only. So I went into the colored restroom. And then I come out and I contacted a black cab driver who was out in front of the terminal. And I explained my situation that I had to stay in Atlanta overnight. Could he rec- could they uh, recommend a hotel? So he takes me to an all an all black uh, neighborhood, a nice little um, hotel. I stayed there. The next day I'm on the bus and I go into Waycross. I'm assigned a dorm with um, seven or eight other players of color. There wasn't any. Uh, white players in the dorm, just black or players of color. I was assigned a dorm. Uh, the next day, I, I met the um, the instructors. Was issued a uniform. Um, started <clears throat> started back training. First week went by, and uh, uh, I'm still there. Uh, I could hear the the racial slurs and the racial remarks from some of the other white players, but it didn't bother me. The second week, um, I'm still there and going on to the play the, an exhibition game. And towards the end of the, um, the second week, um, there's a list on, the, on your dorm, uh, on the door. And if, you're, if your name appears on this list, that means you're gonna be sent home. So it was, uh, it was a Friday and I see my name on the list. I go in and they said, Mr. Ray, uh, we're, uh, we're pleased with your your performance, but uh, we think you need a little more seasoning. So uh, I was kind of I was kind of discouraged uh, outside, but inside I was I was thrilled about getting back getting back home, getting back to Canada. Right. Uh, so I left, and back then, <clears throat> uh, blacks had to ride on the back of the bus. So I get on the bus, and the bus starts rambling up to to the northern states. And uh, the only time I got off the bus was to go to the restroom and grab a sandwich or bite tea back on the bus. And I was five days on the bus. And as I was getting closer up north, I started moving up on the bus and I'm at the center of the bus. And when I got to Bangor, Maine, I'm sitting at the front of the bus. Uh, the next three and a half hours, I'm, uh, I'm in my hometown and I stepped off the bus and I said, Willie, forget about baseball. 
concentrate on hockey. And that's when uh, um, Pajemlak contacted me. And, and I think you mentioned in the book, uh, you you know, you had a, this tryout with the same organization that I think in 1952 signed an 18-year-old named uh, Henry Lewis Aaron. But there was a key difference mm-hmm. between what his yeah. his camp experience was like and yours. What was that? I don't know. I, I he probably well. Uh, I, I think he said that. I think I, I think you said he, you know, the, the it was different. The, the living arrangements were a little different. I think. Yeah, I was I was in a I was in a dorm living in a dorm and then we uh, we ate uh, we ate with uh, yeah, you, you know they had our own eating uh, uh, eating um, place, but I. Um, when I went down there, you know, and uh, I, I don't think I, I don't think I, my, my heart was in it uh, fully, um, because I, I was interested in playing hockey, and I said, gosh, if I play, if I happened to uh, sign, um, I would have turned the, I would have turned the contract down, because I would have wanted to go back home, but it, it was, um, it was, it was a learning experience, and. and you know, as 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 I said, I uh, um, I was faced with some racial racial slurs and racial <clears throat> racial remarks, but it didn't it just didn't bother me. And you utilized and, the, uh, the sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I said, and you utilized the Green Book. The Green Book is is written about in the book where you you know to find a place to stay. Correct. Oh yes, yes, and um, because you know I I had to. Uh, I had to make a living, and and the the the, the, the things back then, you know, uh, even when I went down there, they they hadn't uh, they hadn't assigned a, a hotel for me. I I had to find my own hotel. All they did was um, um, pay pay uh, the airfare down, and then and then uh, uh, the bus fare back. And and now. Now, obviously, your heart was in hockey, but there's, when you're talking about your career, I think you wrote one point uh, of the of the when the six team NHL era. It wasn't original, and it certainly wasn't golden. Uh, what do you hope people understand about what those times were like for a hockey player? You know, trying to make a living and, and trying to have have some stability in his life. Yeah, well, you 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 needed you needed to have some some hockey sense. You needed to have some hockey ability and. Uh, I guess well, you know, Punch Emlek saw something in me because he watched me play the last the last couple of years, and even you know uh, when I had when I had my eye injury and uh, and then I started back playing again. Everybody thought that I'd recovered from my injury. Even my parents thought that uh, you know I could see, uh, but I was blind in my right eye, and I only told my younger sister. And I and and uh, Punch didn't uh, he didn't know that I was blind in my right eye because. I didn't take any eye exam when I went to training camp. They had, they didn't have anything there to, to uh, take an eye exam. I, I, I kept myself in good shape. I worked out at the gym, played baseball, and so when I went to training camp, I was a, uh, maybe two or three pounds away from my playing weight. But when I went there, I went there with the purpose of making the team. They were going to keep 20 or 22 players on the roster. I told myself. I'm going to be one of the 22, regardless of what I have to do. If I have to skate faster or play harder, but I'm I'm going to be one of the 22. And um, you know, I I, uh, I was picked and made the team, and uh, we won the we won the championship that year. And then that gave me the extra confidence that I needed. I just told myself, well, you can do anything you set your mind to do. He says, uh, all you need to do is just work hard and stay focused on what you want to do. And now I. Th- now, I, I, what's something about your career when you get into the sort of nuts and bolts, you know, hockey stuff? You were the top yeah. goal scorer in the Western Hockey League. The first year you got to play right wing with your stick yeah. and your left eye toward the middle of the ice. Yeah. How much do you wonder, right. wonder sometimes about, you know, what if that move had happened sooner? Because I think with the Bruins you were playing playing on the left on the left side. I know that's that, that's what I that's what I was thinking also. But see, I always played left wing. Even when I was growing up, even when I when I played in the in the uh, um, in the younger leagues, uh, I always played left wing. And then in 1965, when I went to training camp in Los Angeles, Alfie Pike was the coach. And I got there, and uh, Alfie had about six or seven left wingers, and he only had two right wingers. 
And um, he said, Willie, have you ever played right wing? And I said, no, Alfie, I've, I've always played uh, left wing, you know, being a left-hand shot. He says, well, he says, uh, I'd like you to give it a try. He says, I could use your speed on the right side. So I switch over to the right side now. You know, the boards are to my, uh, to my right. I don't have to be turning my head uh, to see the play because I can watch the play and the puck and everything. And, and it took me about maybe six, seven games, and then I, I fitted right in. And then, as you mentioned, I won the goal scoring that year uh, due to the fact that I switched over. And then uh, I played right wing the rest, uh, the rest of my career. I, um, I played two more years with, uh, with the Blades, and then I went to San Diego in 1967. And um, in 1969, I won the goal scoring again due to the fact that I had switched over to the right side. And and nowadays, I mean, we see you know watch hockey. Uh, I think the two like the two best left wings probably the last oh, 30, yeah. thirty years yeah. have been Timu Solani and Alex Ovechkin. They're both right, right. shots playing the left side. But right. back then, I guess it was you, fair. They were fairly like your lefty play yeah. play left wing, righty play right well, wing. Is that is that accurate? Well, yeah. Well, uh, you know, right wingers that play left wing and 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 left hand shots that play right wing. You have that advantage when you're get, when you're coming down and then you're cutting in on the net and. Um, I had I had uh, I had I had lots of opportunities to to uh, you know score goals. I was uh, I was considered a fast skater. I I, uh, I could get away quick. I could break away from my check. And uh, once I got a stride away from uh, them, you know, uh, I usually got in and got a got a shot on the net. What was the uh, level of play like when you got to Los Angeles after having played in the NHL, and then obviously when you're playing with the Quebec? In Quebec with the Quebec Aces, what was it like? Uh, how, I mean, what was the caliber of play like in Los Angeles? It was, yeah, it was it was a good caliber of hockey. There was uh, there was uh, I played against uh, several players that had played in the National Hockey League, and um, were playing uh, uh, in Seattle, uh, playing in in Vancouver. Um, Victoria had a team. The Western Hockey League was a good league. There was uh, there was probably twelve or uh, thirteen teams, and uh, you know when I when I came in, you know San Diego and. In Los Angeles, and um, there was Phoenix, uh, Denver, um, uh, Salt Lake City, uh, and then uh, Calgary, Edmonton, uh, Vancouver, Victoria. So it was a good league, and uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of good hockey players uh, playing in it at that time. Yeah, I mean, so so in LA, you also ended up that's it. That's where you ended up making your home. Uh, you basically moved down to San Diego, and that's that's where uh, the league found you after after basically exactly. leaving. Yes. Uh, I was <laughs> I had played six years in Los Angeles, and then um, in 1967 was the first expansion of the NHL. That's when the Kings came into the fabulous form, and they weren't going to have two pro teams in in Los Angeles, so the the Los Angeles Blades team folded. But Max McNabb uh, was the coach and general manager of the San Diego Gulls. And Bob Breitbart was the founder and the operator of, of the sports arena. And they found out that my contract was, uh, was up for grabs. So they contacted me in Los Angeles and said, Willie, uh, uh, we, um, we're trying to get a hold of your contract. We will know in a couple, two or three days. And if we do, how would you uh, feel about coming to San Diego and play? Well, when, see, I played against the San Diego Gulls the first year that they were in the league in 1966. And the sports arena would hold 14,380 uh, fans. And every weekend, that building was full. But, well, you know, back then, the ticket price, the top ticket price was $6, um, um, $3. Uh, senior citizens, military could get in for, for 250 So they filled that building on the weekend. So Max called me back and says, yeah, well, we, we, have, we have your contract. We'd like you to come down and, and negotiate. And I says, well, I'm, I'm working here. The only I could probably come down after uh, drive down after work on, on Friday. And they said, okay, why don't you come down and, and um, stay, uh, stay Saturday and Sunday, and then you can, if you want, you can go back on, on uh, Sunday afternoon. I said, okay. So I come down, and I, had, I didn't have an agent back then. But I had a list of what I thought was a fair contract. And I asked for um, a contract. And I says, <clears throat> if we get into, the, uh, if we get into the, the playoffs, I would like $300. Uh, if we get into the second round, um, I would like $300. I'm using that just mm -hmm. as a, yeah. a number. 
And I says, if I score, if I I can I can score you thirty goals. Uh, if I don't get hurt, I can score you thirty goals. And I, if I score thirty goals, I want so much. So I had you know listed down, and I went down, and I carried it down. And I met them at the the Mission Valley Inn. It's it's no longer there. Hmm. Uh, Bob Breitbart was there. Max was there, and we uh, we meet. Uh, I come down, and we meet in a booth, and we're we're sitting. There was there's the three of us. And they said, Willie, how have you been? I said, fine. He said, uh, you had a good year. And I said, fine. So, so you know, we, we talked. And then I, and then, uh, I says, uh, uh, I've, I've got some things written down here, and I want you to take a look at them and, and think um, uh, and give them some thought. And so they looked at them, and, you know, and said, oh, this is, oh no, do we, we can't give you 300. We can maybe give you 200 and this and that, and, you know, crossed out and put this down and crossed out. And I looked at it and I said, well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy. I just, uh, I don't think this is a lot, a lot uh, for a contract and for some bonuses. So I went back to Los Angeles, drove back, drove back to Los Angeles. I stayed, stayed the weekend or stayed till Saturday. I drove back early, um, early Saturday, got back and started, and started my job. Uh, again, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then they call me Friday, and they said, Willie, they said um, uh, we've uh, we've talked it over and we've put some new figures down, and uh, I think that we can uh, probably come close to what you want. And I said, Well, coming close is not not good with me. I says, As, um, I feel that the the amount of money that that I had down. I, is a fair contract, and I and I says, you know, I know what what my uh, uh, what my uh, my scoring title is, and I says I know uh, how many goals I can score for you, and uh, uh, I feel this is fair. So uh, I went down. This is my second trip down, and uh, again they um, they talked it over, and they said, you know, you we just want you to sign a one year contract, and. Uh, and so on and so forth. And, and again, I didn't, I, we didn't come to terms. So I go back, I go back to, I drive back. It's only two hours back there. And uh, I drive back and I'm working, I'm working at, uh, at, at my job. And uh, then they, um, they called me again on the following Friday. And um, the same, the same thing I says, uh, there's no sense of me driving down there and wasting your time and wasting my time. I says, <clears throat> I have a fair contract here. And then I added a couple other things. And because I had talked to, I had talked to uh, um, some hockey players and I, I talked to a couple of businessmen and, and they said, uh, this is not a lot of money for, for what you're asking and so on and so forth. So I went down and I signed a one year contract. And um, I said, I, I, I scored 25, 28 goals the first year. And then I signed a two-year contract, and I, I was there for seven years. They were they were in the they were in the league for um, seven years, and uh, I was the oldest I was the oldest player, staying seven years. Some guys came and stayed two years, three, four, five, six, but I stayed the seven years, and then the, the league folded in 19, 1974. But um, I. Uh, I, I, I felt that uh, I enjoyed San Diego. Uh, I met a lot of good friends down uh, here, and uh, I, did, I decided to stay. And I, I've been here ever since 1967. Enjoying the good weather. Yeah. Well, it is good weather. I mean, if you, <laughs> you know, I would even I was consider on taking a cut in salary just to just to stay here because <laughs> the weather the weather's great. It, it really is. But um, and then I, I I kind of fell in love with um, a, a lot of a lot of friends and 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 people that I met and um, I just I just uh, I just enjoyed it and I, I got married here in 1969 uh, married um, um, a young lady from uh, that's that's from uh, Vancouver and um, we have a daughter and uh, uh, I'm here and then uh, you know I retired 1979-80 and I wanted to get back into hockey because I felt that I had something to give back to the sport and give back to the game uh, what hockey had given me and I was very much um, uh, interested in, in youth development and uh, hockey schools and hockey clinics for kids and um, a door would open, a door would close a door would open, a door would close so I started uh, I had a, I had a few jobs. I worked construction for uh, 
three years, and um, then I, I sold ca- cars at uh, John Hine Pontiac in, in Mission Valley. Then I get into the private security business, uh, a buddy of mine that um, I was working with, uh, Mike Gore. His dad, Bill Gore, was the the, the mayor of, uh, of Fredericton uh, back a few years, and he had a security company, and Mike said he was going to go and work for his dad. He said, Willie, he says, come on. He says, you can make more money uh, than working here with John Hine Pontiac. I said, I don't know anything about security. So I worked, and Mike left, and uh, two months later, he calls me, and he says, Willie, he says, I- I've got a job for you. Um, he says, what you need to do is you need to uh, write, write an exam through the state of California, which will allow you to acquire a guard card, which will allow you to work as a security guard. So I said, well, I don't know. I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty set here at John Hine. He says, yeah, but he says, this is a good opportunity for you. So anyway, I left and um, went with Mike and um, got a guard card. And I started working uh, graveyard shifts. And my job was to have a company vehicle and to drive around to different locations where guards were posted. Like we did a lot of construction areas. And we wanted I wanted to make sure that the guards were dressed properly. They weren't asleep, you know. Things like that. So I did that, and uh, I worked. Uh, I worked the graveyard for about four months, and I went moved down to the swing shift from four to twelve, and then down to the down to the day shift, um, and worked uh, the day shift with, and did some some functions with Mike, um, and I enjoyed. I enjoyed it. Was making more money, and then we uh, they they were getting into the um, the armed armed guard. A business uh, where um, armed guards would uh, escort jewelers to the uh, airport so they could go and do um, a jewelry show and then we'd come and pick them up and bring them back to their home or bring them back to their place of business so I got into that and then they wanted uh, um, they wanted me to get my concealed weapons permit because they were having some businesses um, where they needed uh, plainclothes um, guards and so I had to go down to the uh, the sheriff's department and qualify um, with a weapon, and uh, I qualified. Now I can I can wear a sport shirt, a sport jacket, and pants or a suit, and I can carry a, a weapon concealed. And that meant more money. And so I did that. And then uh, I worked there for about 14 years, and then they had a they they were having a cutback, and. Um, they said we we have to you know we have to cut back we we have to cut your salary so I uh, I said no I said uh, I'll just go take unemployment for and then find another job so I left there and a buddy of mine was the uh, assistant manager assistant manager of the hotel Dell uh, uh, it's a uh, um, a hotel over in Coronado Island very very prestigious uh, hotel so I went over and uh, I called. Uh, Jim, Jim Teagarden was his name. I said, Jim, are you doing any hiring? And he says, um, no, but come on over and fill out an application and uh, we'll see what we can do. So I filled out an application and uh, uh, within uh, within a month, um, he says, I got, a, I got a job for you. But it was uh, working um, graveyard, then the swing, and then the day, um, which I did with, the, with security. So I worked there and uh, I was there for five years. And then um, Brian McBride was the newly appointed uh, vice president of the NHL's um, um, a diversity program. And he was just assigned to this job by Commissioner Bettman. And um, he was in a meeting with Lou Vero from USA Hockey and uh, three other, four other gentlemen. Uh, and they wanted, they wanted to expand hockey for every boy and girl possible to give them a chance to you know to play hockey and Lou Vero was talking to them and Jackie Robinson's name happened to come up during the meeting and they said Ryan Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947 and it opened it up for for not only the black black hockey players but players of color and then out of the blue Lou Vero says well we have our own Jackie Robinson in hockey and the room went silent and they said well who is it Lou Vero said well Willie O'Ree he says I was living in New York and I watched him play with the Boston Bruins in the old Madison Square Garden. And um, he's quite a hockey player. 
So then Brian McBride uh, said, well, um, do you know where he is? And Lou said, well, no, but he was playing uh, in San Diego with the San Diego Gulls. So Brian tried to get a hold of me, and he had, he had no luck. But he knew a couple of FBI agents in San Diego, and he called them. And he said, uh, you know, explain the, you know, the situation. He says, I, I know Mr. O'Ree is in San Diego. And he says, I'd like to get a hold of him. So um, within a half a day, they called back and they said, yeah, Mr. O'Ree is working over at the Hotel Dell in the security department. So then Brian called me. And um, when he first said, you know, I'm Brian McBride and um, I work for the National Hockey League uh, uh, in the uh, – diversity program and I was a little hesitant you know on the phone and I said so why are you calling me he says well I'm we've got this new program and he says I was wondering if you possibly would be interested in and uh, and uh, working for working for some kids uh, getting them into hockey and uh, I says well I I'm I'm working here uh, with the Hotel Dell and he says well what we'd like to do is plan plan a weekend of hockey to um, for these kids uh, in Boston, in Boston, to to uh, represent uh, your breaking the color barrier. So the programs that they had, they selected uh, three or four kids from each program, flew them into Boston uh, for a weekend of hockey. I I, I flew in and uh, had a great time with uh, with the kids and talked to them and uh, signed them. <clears throat> Signed some autographs and everything, and then, then I go back to, um, I go back to San Diego, and um, the kids went back to their prospective homes, and then a couple of weeks later, Brian called me again, and he says, he says I've got this program up in up in Bellingham, and they need a guest a guest speaker for these kids. Apparently, the guest speaker that they uh, had in mind couldn't come, and he said, uh, could you go up there and speak with these these kids? And I said, well, I'm. I'm still working, Brian. So uh, I got I got time off. It was a it was a Saturday, and I didn't work Saturday, so I flew up flew up Friday. Um, I addressed these boys and girls, and there was there was there were some adults there. Addressed them. Then I I go back home, and then um, Brian called me again. He says, "How tight are you in uh, with the hotel?" Uh, I says, "Well, I if if I would had to leave, I I have to give them two two weeks notice." He says, "Well, uh, I'd like I'd like to hire you uh, with the NHL for, with this diversity program." So I, I give a two weeks notice. Now uh, um, I'm working for the uh, for the NHL, and I told him, I said, "Well, I can't move to New York." I says, "I've got my family here." I, I said, "I've got to I've got to stay here in Los An- in San Diego." He said, "Well, you can work out of your home." So I flew to New York, and um, he laid out this program, and. It, it was something that I was—I I felt that I was interested in—and signed up. Um, and then in 191998, um, the uh, the All Star Game was in Vancouver, yes. And it just happened to fall on my 40th anniversary of breaking the color barrier with the Bruins. So, Commissioner, I was there, and uh, Commissioner uh, Bettman appointed me the director of the NHL's diversity program, which is now Hockey is for Everyone program. Right, and uh, then I started yeah. traveling around. Um, go ahead, Nate. Yeah, and and how did that? <laughs> how, yeah, how did, how did working in that program? I mean, this is going to sound maybe sound cliche, but how did working in that yeah. program and helping uh, you know children? How did that kind of keep you young? Oh, it did. It it, it really did. I uh, I was traveling about uh, about fifteen days a month. I, I was on the road, and I was traveling, and I went to. Um, I spoke at a lot of uh, elementary, middle schools, junior high, high schools. I spoke at uh, boys and girls clubs, YMYWCAs, uh, juvenile detention facilities. So um, they had me they had me listed out, and I was traveling around and, to let these boys and girls know that there is a, another sport that they can play. And I says, um, I just got involved with it um, uh, a little bit ago, but it's a good it's a good program. And I says, if you if you if you come. Uh, and if you don't like it, you can walk away. It's not going to cost you anything. So I started doing clinics, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, people wanted me to come and do clinics and and uh, speak at schools. And I mean, I, I I was I was really busy, and I I just fell in love with it. 
Um, I can't say that I had a, a, a bad day. Um, if I, you know, if I was flying and my, my skates didn't get there, then I, uh, they managed to get another pair of skates for me to, to wear. And uh, it was just being there and, and being on the ice with the kids and, and, and um, naturally they wanted to know about, about my, my career and, and my history. And, you know, and I told them about, you know, growing up and, uh, my eye injury, and I, I told myself that uh, uh, I, I overcame it. Once the doctor told me I couldn't play, I said I, I didn't believe him uh, because he didn't know how I felt. And and then I just told him about uh, I wanted to give back to to the to the sport what hockey had given me over the 21 years that I had to play. Uh, and it's it's been great. Uh, I thank uh, I thank Gary. Now I call him Gary, but before I used to call him Commissioner Bettman. And when I met him in Ottawa, um, this land, the last trip, he took me aside and he says, "Willie, he says you've known me for over 20 years, and he says no more, n- no more of this, uh, Commissioner Bettman. It's Gary. Please <laughs> call me Gary." And I get a laugh out of it now because sometimes I have to hesitate, uh, you know, when I get introduced to him because all of a sudden, you know, um, I I. Uh, I almost say, you know, Commissioner Bettman, but he's been great. Uh, he says, if you have a problem and uh, you can't get it solved, you come in my come to my office. My door is always open. And uh, he, he was true to that. Uh, I, I I've never had to go, you know, but uh, hmm. he's been he's been he's been very fair and uh, um, right. He's he's been. Um, um, he's he's been a he's been a Joe when it when, when it comes to the uh, the uh, the program. Nice. Uh, he knew when he hired Brian McBride that uh, um, things were going to change uh, for the better, and it has. Uh, we have more boys and girls playing hockey now than ever before. More girls playing hockey, and uh, it's just great. And now uh, you've talked. You know, San Diego is your home, but you know you're from Fredericton. How how, yeah. how would you describe the way that you know your hometown. You know people such as you know Bill Hunt wrote a column, and then friends such as yeah. Brendan David Sampson started uh, yeah. do, doing some legwork. What can you just say about the way they rallied to the cause to nominate you for the Hockey Hall of Fame, and well, ultimately, you know, first, they thought I was in the Hall of Fame. They couldn't understand that I wasn't. Well, why? Why isn't Willie O'Ree in, in the Hall of Fame? And I knew I wasn't going in as as a hockey player because I only played forty five games in the National Hockey League. But, you know, uh, Bill Hunt called me this morning. I was out having coffee with some friends of mine, and we were our social distance. I was wearing masks, so on and so forth. And he called me and I said, oh, Bill, I'm, I'm in a meeting right now. He, uh, I, I said, can, can I call you back a little later on? He said, well, uh, how about tomorrow? I said, okay, I'll call you tomorrow. You call me tomorrow morning at 7 a.m., San Diego time. So I'm going to talk with him tomorrow. But anyway, getting back, yes, uh, Brenda and David, Samson, they were they were jewels, really. They took it upon themselves, along with Bill, to reach out and contact so many people in the Fredericton area, and they got so many petitions, and they submitted them. And um, I, I I I mentioned them uh, in my in you know in my in my speech uh, when I was in, when I was inducted into the Hall of Fame. They uh, they went out on a limb, and uh, I was I was so happy. And uh, I congratulated them for all the tremendous work that they they did, and they they were so proud um, when they found out that I was I was getting inducted. I called them, from, you know, from my home in San Diego when I when I got the call from from um, Lanny McDonald and and uh, and I said uh, and uh, John Davison. Uh, they called me on the, on the day and said, "Yeah, boy, uh, you're going into the hall." So Brenda was having a, a group of people at her at her uh, home, and she said, "Willie, please call me to let me know uh, what's happened." And I was supposed to get the call between between noon and and, and 3 p.m. And uh, after I called them, and uh, the the phone rang, and uh, I said, "Yeah, is Brenda there?" And um, somebody else had picked up the phone. They said, "Oh, Brenda, it's uh, it's Willie O'Ree." So she comes and grabs it, takes the phone, and, Willie, Willie, how are you? I says, oh, um, I'm not too bad. She says, well, well uh, what's happening? I said, well, um, uh, I guess um, they uh, are going to 
let me in the Hall of Fame. I put it like that, you know. <laughs> oh, she went and she jumped up, and you could hear everybody in the room, you know. Right. And uh, it, it 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 was great. It, it was just a it was a, uh, just a great feeling. I, I have to ask you our, in our last question. Thank you for giving us so much time. Uh, my my, <laughs> my my last question is um, is really when you were up there and in your speech, you put the speech at the tail end of this book, and you know you talk. Um, in yeah. the speech about, um, for example, looking up to um, Herb Carnegie and his brother. Yes. Um, and, here, here. And so I want to ask you, when you're up there, did you really feel like you were, you know, representing a guy like Herb who probably should have been in the, in the NHL? And as well, Larry Kwong, another guy who yes. probably didn't get a another fair one. shake. And you mentioned yeah. seven players, I think you said, that probably could have made the NHL, but didn't because they were black in the book. So did you did you feel like you were up there for them? I was. Uh, I really. Uh, Herb Carnaby should have been in. The, he should have been in the, the hall of in the hall of fame. He went to the he went to the Rangers training camp, and he was one of the best players there. He went to the Leafs training camp. He was one of the best players best players there, and um, you know he was he was overlooked, and you know. <clears throat> When they when they called me, um, you know, and uh, they wanted me, the Bruins called me and said, "Yeah, we we need you to to meet uh, meet the Bruins to play two games." Um, I was I was I was over uh, I was overwhelmed, and uh, I thought about I thought about these other players, you know, Mike Morrison coming up after me, uh, 14 years later, but the, the you know some of the guys that were named, uh, and I, I felt that. Uh, I, I was I was giving them uh, justice by by naming them, and I I even I even talk when I when I go to schools and uh, talk about you know breaking the color barrier. But I said there was other other players out there, other black players out there that uh, that had the the skills and the talent and should have been in the National Hockey League before me. But it it just worked out that uh, I just happened to be um, there at the apparently at the right time. And Larry Kwong too, right? I mean, he he was uh, yes. so, so a Chinese Canadian yes. who, who didn't get a fair shake. Yes. So so on that note, uh, Mr. O'Ree, uh, I want to thank you for giving us so much of your time today. And um, yeah, <laughs> no problem. Um, good luck with the book, and I imagine that uh, you'll be doing some more promotions over the next uh, few weeks. And we wish you yes. all the best I've of got, luck with that. I've got. A, I think I've got uh, another list here. I think I got another twelve or fourteen, you know, in November, <laughs> November and uh, December. So, you know, I uh, I'll just take them one at a one at a time and uh, well, and enjoy doing them. Well, I can say that Perfect. we certainly enjoyed talking to you, and certainly the story is as we we talked off the top. There's a lot to it, and uh, there's a lot to your story. And uh, again, thank you very much. You're welcome, and uh, you gentlemen, take care. Be safe. All right, thank you. We'll do. Thanks. We will.